So please have that passage open in front of you in Luke 12. And uh, this parable which we find here, and the Lord Jesus is preaching at a certain point in his earthly ministry. And as we read together in the passage, on this occasion, somebody from the crowd shouts out and interrupts him. And we see that verse 13, this man calls out and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know the precise details of the family dispute. Sadly, it's not uncommon for disagreements and disputes to happen in families, especially when it comes to money and property. It's always been a fruitful source of trouble. But this man, for some reason, feels so strongly about the matter that he interrupts the Lord Jesus to seek his intervention. Now, some commentators take the view that the man who is interrupting the Lord Jesus had been defrauded by his brother. So he comes to Jesus really for him to act as a, a judge and an arbitrator to set this matter right. There's a suggestion that perhaps the brother had taken more than his fair share of the inheritance and he wants the Lord Jesus to put it right and to order a fair division. Others suggest that the interpreter was a, a younger brother. You say, well, why is that important? Well, in Old Testament times, the oldest brother in the family received a double portion of the inheritance. You can look at that Deuteronomy 21. It lays down the law on that matter. And so some understand this request from this man is actually for the Lord Jesus to change the Old Testament law. He didn't like his older brother receiving a double portion, and so he is asking Jesus in his capacity with his authority to alter the law in his favor. Now, whatever the specifics, what is interesting is this. The Lord Jesus has nothing to do with it. Look at verse 14. Man, who made me a judge, an arbitrator over you? It's a really interesting answer because the Lord could have dealt with it in an instant. You know, he had all authority in all things. But this wasn't his purpose or his mission. By the way, it's a helpful reminder that the business of gospel ministers and preachers isn't primarily to interfere in civil or political matters, but to preach the gospel. You know, not to get talking up in, in things that are not our business. And the Lord Jesus, he didn't come to change Old Testament laws or to be an adjudicator over legal matters. He came to be a savior. And he would always help those in spiritual need. But this was not his concern. But he uses it as an opportunity to impress upon the crowd that life is so much more than material possessions. And that is where he goes into this parable. Now, the Lord Jesus tells a parable. Maybe you're familiar with it. And the parable is about a farmer who has this exceptionally fertile ground. And his crops do very well indeed, and he yields plentifully. And so whether it's his vineyards or his olive groves or out in the fields, everything is coming into a brilliant harvest year on year on year, and he becomes very, very rich. And with all his wealth, this man sits down and he realizes that he hasn't got the capacity to store all this wealth. And so he realizes he needs to tear down old barns and build these much bigger barns to hold all of his riches. And this is done. And he sits down and he says to himself, Saul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease now. 
eat, drink, and be merry. He had goods enough. He had money enough. All seemed to be set. So what else was there to do but to indulge, eat, drink, and be merry? But then God speaks, and he describes and addresses this man. And he says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And really it's that, that text that we're looking at. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. What is it that we can learn? Well, the first thing I want you to see is this. The difference between God's thoughts and man's thoughts. You know, there is a, a chasm of difference here between the perspective of God and the perspective of this man and those in the world like him. You know, think of this man. No doubt he was esteemed by others as a brilliant farmer and a fantastic businessman. You know, he had all the success. He had done magnificently. You couldn't argue with his methods and his results. He was the, the best in sowing and reaping and selling. Everything he touched seemed to prosper. You know, in today's world, no doubt he would be sought out as some high-ranking consultant and featured in the Financial Times or Farmers Weekly, maybe even a TV documentary or a, a podcast, whatever. But in total contrast to the opinions of the world, God's analysis is very different. And he says, you fool. And so do you see this, this chasm of difference between God's reckoning and the way that the world and people think. The world's way of looking at things and heaven's way. You know, it's even more surprising because there seems to be no underhandedness with this man. You know, it's not as if he's been playing the system or, you know, acting dishonestly or, or cheating the books. It's not said that he was corrupt or an oppressor of others. You know, those are not the reasons why God calls him a fool. You know, the Lord says in his word, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And it's interesting because the things that often resonate most with men are often those things that most displease the Lord. And it reminds us that we live in a, in a ruined world, in a messed up world, and an upside down and twisted world when the things that are of real value are overlooked by men and the things that God counts precious are discarded as worthless by men. And so ask the question with me, why does God call this man a fool? You know, it's not said lightly by the Lord, and it's his prerogative. God is God, and we are but men. We know we need to be very careful in our judgments, but God is the ultimate all-knowing judge, and he pronounces this man with his great wealth a fool. But why? Well, he does because he was covetous. Verse 15, it's no coincidence that the Lord Jesus delivers this parable after that striking statement, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the thing he possesses. You know, this man is regarded by God as a fool because he's covetous. He wants more and more. You know, the Bible says of us sinners in Ecclesiastes 1.8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. In other words, nothing you know, can satisfy the heart of man outside of Christ. And so we constantly desire something else. And people think 
If only I could just get a little bit more, that would be enough. But they get a little bit more, and what happens then? Well, they're looking for the next thing. The heart of man is never satisfied outside of Christ, and so it's looking for more, and that leads to covetousness. And so I have a car, but I want a better one. You know, I, I've been on holiday, but I want to go for longer. I want to go the next one. I have a house, but you know, I'd like a better house. You know, I'd like a bigger one. The heart of man is insatiable. He cannot be satisfied with the things in this life. And it goes on and on. And if we live for the things of this life only, we're fools. Now, of course, we need things. We need a home, a job, money to live, and, and other things besides but it is one thing to have some of these things. It is another thing to live for them. And that was the trouble with this man. He didn't think or remember that a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of what he has. By the way, it's not just individuals, but it's organizations and institutions who suffer from that as well. Always wanting more. But in the end, all the wealth, all the riches... What does it count? A person's life doesn't ultimately consist in these things. And to think it does is to be counted a fool in the sight of God. You know, and we so easily forget this truth, believing instead that true and lasting joy would be ours if we could only have a little bit more money or a little bit more fame or a little bit more free time or a little bit more of whatever else we see others enjoying and want for ourselves. My dear friend, may it never be true of you or me that God in heaven looks upon us, sees our hearts, and sees them so bound up in things, in money, in possessions, that this is what we look to, and coveting more, because that is foolish. He was covetous. And he was also, verse 21, he wasn't rich towards God. You know, Jesus summarizes, and we'll see it a little bit later, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There was a vacuum in this man's life. You know, he had a great farm, he had lots of money, but we are not told that he ever worshipped the Lord or read the Scriptures or was faithful in that way. There is nothing of that here. We're not told that he ever went on his knees to thank the great God for his mercy. All those things were absent from his life. His heart was, was taken up with other things. And that's why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money. And the Bible says as such that God isn't in their thoughts. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And people are unthankful and unholy. You know, measure that truth with what you see in the world around you. You know, what are people living for in the world today? You know, are they not exactly like this man? Are they not wanting this kind of material success like this man? Do they not want to gain so much that they can say to themselves, take your ease, eat and drink and be merry? That's why things like the lottery are still so popular or, or gambling of any form. It's the prospect of getting rich quick. And it appeals to the, the covetousness in people. But, you know, you read what happens to the winners. And you often find that the abundance of things has only heaped more misery upon them. Why? Because a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. You know, there is something so much more to life 
than these things. It is the great tragedy when people's lives are empty of the great things, the things of God and the gospel and the Lord Jesus, when people are not rich towards God. You know, as they run around after the things of this world, and God in heaven, all glorious and upon his throne, looks down and pronounces such people fools. You know, let me ask you, are you here tonight and in a similar condition? You know that all your life, however young or old you may be, you're running after the world and the things of this world, and yet you're still empty. You know, your, your life is there, and you might come along to church occasionally, but are you really listening to the Lord? Are you really praying for grace? Or, you know, you're just here, and it's an act, and you're not really listening. You're not really asking God for mercy and to deal with you. It's just outward. You might want people to see that you're here, but your heart is still far from the things of God. It is our prayer that God would wake you up and that you would see the urgency of your condition. This man was not rich towards God. That is why he was a fool. And verse 20, he was a fool because he forgot that he had a soul. This night, your soul will be required of you. Now, what do we mean by the soul? Well, it's the best part of you. It's the part which will never die. You know, the body is going to die. It will need to be resurrected. You can see that easily. Started to get some gray hairs. Or maybe your hair is beginning to disappear. We lose our teeth. You know, wrinkles break out on our faces. All of these things point us to the fact that death approaches and we can't avoid it. But you have a soul. And you'll face the holy God. And so you need to be ready for that when it comes. And the sad thing was, this man wasn't thinking about his soul or eternity. He was thinking about his belly, about indulging himself and enjoying himself. And into that, God breaks in and he says, you fool. You know, I was reading recently of a man who described the difference between the age of the Puritans and the age that followed. And he said that the age of the Puritans with its seriousness and earnestness about the things of God, could be called the age of the soul. But it was followed very quickly by the age of the belly. In other words, the Puritan age was marked by those who loved the Lord Jesus and loved the Word of God and desired to worship, preach the gospel, serious about the soul and heaven and hell, but it was replaced by a generation that was more interested in living for the pleasures of self and of the flesh, and living for the belly, and for carnal things, and sinning in full. And there's a great difference. And we know what God is saying about people, and any generation that lives for the belly, and for this life only, forgetting the soul, he says that they are fools. And it is staggering to me that people choose to live for the body only, when it is limited in life, and the soul lives forever. You know, did you know that there are no funerals for the soul? I hope you understand that. You know, when we face a funeral and there is the coffin and inside is the body, it's buried, it's put down in the ground until the end of the world and Christ's return. And we know there's a wonderful prospect for believers, new bodies, etc. But at that moment, the soul goes on. There are no undertakers of the soul because it doesn't die. As soon as the soul leaves the body, it immediately goes to heaven or hell at once. And there's no coming back. 
There's no return ticket. There's no intermediate place, purgatory as some say. There's none of that. The soul is a reality. You have an immortal soul. And the soul needs three things at least. And my dear friend, you need these things tonight. Your soul needs to be washed clean because a dirty soul cannot enter heaven in the presence of a holy God. The Bible says that your soul needs to be washed clean by the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You need to have your soul made whiter than snow by the blood of sprinkling and Christ's saving and redemptive power to cleanse you and clothe you in his perfection. And so I ask you, have you got that? Have you been forgiven? Have you been washed in the blood? Secondly, your soul needs feeding. Feeding with truth the truth of God's word and of the gospel, and to be under the sound of the word and to engage with the word, to be in the word yourself and sharing the word and engaging with these things. That keeps the, the soul healthy, a good diet. You know, no wonder people are in a terrible condition today spiritually, even those who profess faith, because there is a, a poverty in the preaching of the word. And they listen to things that aren't helpful to them. And they don't engage in, in the good things and a healthy diet. You know, they're not talking to one another about heavenly things. We need to have hearts and minds engaged in the truth. So the question is, do these things matter to you? Do you see them as important, the things of the Word of God? And thirdly, you need your soul to be kept from sin and temptation by the power of the grace of God, the keeping power of God. You know, many people are rushing with both feet headlong into temptation. The world knows how to tempt us and how to draw us, and it captures many rushing into temptation and ruin because they fear they're missing out. We need to pray, Lord, keep my sight and my eyes from viewing vanity. Lead me in the paths of righteousness. Lead me in your good and holy ways. This is what your soul needs, to be cleansed, to be fed, to be kept. And only Christ can do that. And this man was a fool because not only did he not realize that his soul was there, but also he was utterly unfit to die. Look at verse 20. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You know, this poor man was so focused on provision for this life that he was totally unfit to die. He had made no preparation for eternity. I was reading recently the account of a, a multimillionaire, significant man in his day. And at the end of his life, this is what he confessed. He said, I have in the course of my lifetime made more money than people could ever realize. I have made provision for everything. But now I must die and I've made no provision for death. You know, it's this parable in reality. And what a terrible place to be in. You know, is that you tonight? Are you sat there and you've made no provision at all for eternity? You've never considered these things. You know, I have to say, my dear friend, on the authority of the Word of God, and with, with great concern for those of you here, if this is you that I'm talking about, you need to listen to what the Lord God says about you. You know, these are not my words. You fool, 
You might be the most wealthy. You might be rich in things or not. But if you're living only for this world, you're in great trouble. You know, think of someone like John Lennon. John Lennon, with all of his success with the Beatles, and, you know, and after uh, one point in their career, you know, he had the audacity to say, he said, we're more popular than Jesus. You know, what a thing to say. Well, he was not ready for death when it came to him suddenly. And his final words were, I'm shot, I'm shot. There's no hope. You know, what does the Bible tell us? Be careful that we do not so live our lives that we forget our soul because soon we'll have to face the Lord in death. And so as we draw these things together, the question then comes to us, how do we keep ourselves from being foolish like this? You know, what are the lessons here? How can we protect ourselves from the foolishness that this man was guilty of? And we need to ask ourselves certain questions. You know, one of the best ways to become wise is to challenge ourselves with the type of questions that we find in the Word of God and to think upon them. For example, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And, you know, and there are questions that come to us from this parable. And the first is this, if we want to avoid being fools, what do we do with our resources? Are we using them wisely in the light of the Scriptures and under the gaze of God? How are we using what we have before the Lord? Because a believer realizes that all that we have is from Him. And they want to be a, a wise steward of the good gifts of God. How you use what God has given you is an indication of where your heart is. You know, that's true in our resources like our money and our possessions. It's true in our time and our energy. You know, what do we give our time and our energy to? Are we on the, the right things and the good things that the Lord has for us? Or are we doing our own thing? You know, we sung together, didn't we? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. We sung it. But did you mean it? Was it truly a prayer of your heart? Was it truly a desire that the Lord would indeed bring that to you and you would give all to him? And what about your soul? What will be required of us? You know, are you taking any action to make sure that your soul is not like this man's soul, that it is washed and sanctified and justified and cleansed? All these things, you know, in your soul, do you know that you are right with God? Can you leave this place tonight and say, I, I know God. I know that he is my father and my friend. You know, if you can't say that, what a pitiable state you're in. You know, if you can walk through those doors tonight, you know, and you cannot say that God is your friend and that you love him and that he's precious to you, that's so very, very sad. But it doesn't need to be like that. You know, as a verse in the book of Proverbs, which says this, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. That's the difference between a wise man and a fool. The wise man foresees the shadow of trouble and he hides in Christ by faith, whereas the simple passes on, ignores, and is punished. There's terrible seriousness in those words. And friend, may I say this to you, God in his purposes has given you this opportunity to be here tonight and how close you are 
to the blessed safety which Jesus affords. What all you have to do in your heart right now is to cry out to him and say, oh God, have mercy upon me. Take pity upon me. I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven and I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Please have mercy upon me. And whoever you are, however young you are, however old you are, whatever your circumstances, I can promise you that if you call to the Lord like that, he will hear you and he will answer you and he will save you. And what you have to do is nothing less, nothing more, give your whole life to him, to trust Christ. You know, the sinner who comes to the Lord Jesus finds that all their guilt, all their sin, all their condemnation is laid upon him. And as they trust in his saving work, they receive forgiveness and his perfection and his righteousness, his life, deliverance. So we turn from our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. And it's all of his grace. It's a wonderful thing. That's how you can know as you leave this place this night that all is well with you. You know, friends, if we have that, the last question is, are we, are we living for Christ or are we living a selfish life? You know, like this man, we're told that he, you know, that he didn't give anything to anyone else. He was building barns for himself. And the only way of sure blessing is given to us in verse 21. The only way to be blessed in time and eternity is to be rich towards God. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it begins, as I've said, by being right with him through Christ. It begins by relying absolutely, entirely on Jesus Christ for life, salvation, and all the blessings of heaven. It's all found in Jesus. And then when we're reconciled to God in Christ and we're rich in Christ, we are enriched as we live for him and as we live for his honor, as we believe and rest and feed upon the Lord all the days of our life and hold communion with him. You know, in this day, there is such a need. And you know, there are those here, they don't want to listen, that's fine. We're all accountable before the Lord on what we hear. But there is such a need for people who are willing to give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, if we are the Lord's, we can live for his glory. We can serve the Lord in the ways that he has given us. However insignificant we may feel ourselves to be, we should not forget, if we're in Christ, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his most marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You say, well, I don't know what I can give. I, I don't have much to offer. It doesn't matter. However great or small you see yourself to be, the law can use you. And he can use you in your circumstances. Let me give you an illustration. There was a man in Australia in the early 1900s. He was ignorant of the gospel. And he, he couldn't read properly. He couldn't really write properly. He was very limited in what he could do. And he had much against him in his family situation. His name was Arthur Stace. He was from a terrible background. He, was a, a, he became a thief. He was an alcoholic. He was in a mess. 
But God, in his grace, wonderfully brought him to know the Savior. And for all his limitations, for all his, his lack of means, for all his baggage, he desperately wanted to do something to exalt the Lord Jesus and to glorify God. And so what he did was this. Painstakingly, he learned one single word in very beautiful copper plate handwriting with chalk. And the word that he chose to learn was eternity. And it was after he'd heard a, a powerful gospel message from Isaiah entitled The Echoes of Eternity. So in chalk, he would get up in the mornings and he would write eternity on pavements all over Sydney. Nobody knew who it was. But thousands of people would be confronted with this challenge to think of eternity. He himself would preach in the open air, having memorized parts of the Bible through it being read to him. And so he put this message of eternity. He died in 1967. Even after his death, they found places where he had written the word eternity, even on the bell of the Sydney General Post Office clock tower. He longed for people to think on eternity and to know that to be without Christ is to be lost. And such was the impact that in the town hall square, a wrought aluminium replica of the word eternity in his handwriting is embedded in the footpath near the waterfall as a memorial. You know, we just celebrated New Year, even as part of the celebrations for the millennium. Do you know what they put on Sydney Harbour Bridge? It was lit up with that word eternity in his handwriting in commemoration of this dear man who was converted to Christ from despair. He couldn't give much, but he did what he could, and the Lord used it. You know, that's what the Lord requires of us, to do what we can whilst we can for his glory. It might not be well spoken of by men. It might not be noticed much by other people, but I'll tell you one thing. God in heaven will see it, and he won't call you a fool. He'll call you his faithful servant. But you know, if you're here tonight and you don't know anything of these things, if you're living for this world, then how I pray that you would pause, ask the question, are you ready to meet God? Are you made a real Christian? You know, I pray that you wouldn't be a fool but that by God's grace you would realize there is more to life than this. You have a soul. Eternity awaits. There is heaven. There is hell. Christ makes the difference. And if you're not in Christ this night, then you are a fool. But by God's grace, may it be that you become wise to salvation and that you turn from your sin and trust the Savior. If you come to him, he won't turn you away. And I pray that you this night will be able to go on your way rejoicing because it is well with you and you're in the Savior. May God help us not to be foolish, but to be wise. Amen.